We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks, Jason. I'd just like to open in a word of prayer, folks, if we could. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here together today. Thank you for your church and for what you're doing in it and through it and um, for your great grace that is upon every heart. We pray today, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive this word of life. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone once said, obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off the goal. Uh, another one that's more earthly is that uh, when you're up to your armpits in alligators, it's difficult to remember the initial objective was to drain the swamp. It's very easy for us as Christians to be overwhelmed by the anxiety of the culture in which you and I are immersed. We easily focus on negatives, don't we? And the nature of news itself, when you think about it, is negative. If the train arrives on time, it's not news. But if the train derails, well, the media thinks it's really important that you and I know about that. So this letter from Paul by Paul to the Ephesians, though, is not like that at all. It's chocker block full of encouragement to the saints in that city. He says, look at what Jesus has done, done for you. Look at the new lives you have in him. Consider the preciousness of his Holy Spirit. Think about the inheritance you've been granted. So we've studied or gone through um, Ephesians 1, 1 to 14 in previous messages. And what we discovered in that is that Ephesus was a city in what is present-day Turkey. And it's one of the seven churches to whom the Spirit speaks in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now, this city was wholly given to idolatry, including temple worship, the worship of Diana or Artemis, and of course, along with that went temple prostitutes. There was witchcraft that was rife in the city, uh, the Judaic mystery cults, and of course, emperor worship. And Paul spent two years in Ephesus, and when he left, he continued to receive communication through fellow church leaders like Timothy, Aquila, and Priscilla, and Tychicus. Uh, so Paul had a vested interest in Ephesus. The letter is written by Paul from prison in Rome and primarily to Gentile believers in Ephesus. The theme of the letter is to help settle them and establish them in the truth and the mystery of the gospel. 
That's what he wants to do. And Paul shows them conclusively how they have been transformed from the idolatry they see around them and bondage to freedom in Christ. <clears throat> the Bible commentator Zanchi has said this regarding this wonderful letter of Ephesians. It is an epitome of the whole Christian doctrine. That's how rich this book is, how rich this letter is from Paul to the Ephesian church. So let's look together at these verses ourselves. <clears throat> I'm hoping that that's the end of it. Verses 15 and 16 says this, as you follow in your Bible, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul starts out this section with this statement, for this reason. This ties to what he's, what, what he's had to say in the passage before it, verses 11 and 14. So let's look briefly at those. They say, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having be, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul is referring to this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit to us. As we as, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we've been stamped it's, impressed, it's on, your, on your forehead. We've been sealed and given this guarantee of the Holy Spirit. He is ours and we are his. He is our protector. And through him we are given a foretaste of the unfathomable riches, riches of, we have in Christ. He is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ until we are fully redeemed at the end of this age. Some examples of what he's telling us we have in Christ. We've all received spiritual blessings to prepare us for the glories of heaven. Okay? That's what we're doing now. He's preparing us. We've been counseled to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, according to Colossians 3 verse 2. All of our service, our praise and worship ascends to God, the Father, through Christ, and all of our blessings descend to us through the, in the same way, through Christ. <clears throat> we were predestined. That means we were foreknown and forechosen by God to be adopted as his children. And we have access to all the privileges in Christ as adopted sons and daughters. We have been adopted from all eternity according to God's eternal counsel and decree. <clears throat> our inheritance and our heritage have been solemnized through Christ's last will and testament to us. When did he give us that? He gave us that at Calvary's cross. And then he arose that we might have access to the Father through him. We've been chosen to be holy and he, he will make us so. His love toward us 
is in the principle of true holiness, were set apart, sanctified for his good purpose. Our salvation and our inheritance are secure according to his unalterable will, to his glory. And lastly, God cannot lie. His promises are secure, and thus so are we. Titus 1 verses 1 and 2. Paul has heard of the faith of the Ephesians through his friends and messengers, and the evidence of it is by virtue of their love toward saints. You see, faith, folks, is accompanied by works, isn't it? If we're in the faith, we will work according to that faith, and our faith will be exemplified by our work, by our works, that this is our faith. Jesus told us this, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. John 13, 35. Love is made visible through service, isn't it? If we say we love someone, but treat that person with indifference, neglect, or unkindness, is this evidence of true faith? No, it's not. And if you examine church history, you'll find that the Christian church after the fall of the Roman Empire was the focal point of villages and towns in Europe as the faith spread. Works of charity were evident during what some historians tend to call the Dark Ages. Hospitals, hospices, schools, universities, and all types of charitable acts and works find their origin in the Church of Jesus Christ. As his earthly body, ministering to the spiritual and the physical needs of community. In his epic book, the In Darkest England and the Way Out, General William Booth, you might know that name, he was the founder of the Salvation Army, he established a comprehensive plan for evangelizing the down-and-out parts of London and other British cities. It included not only preaching the gospel, but also providing housing, clothing, food outlets, and education and training programs to help the poor people become responsible in that society. His wonderful objectives were never fully realized, but we still have the salvos today, don't we? It's still just down the street here. And they're still engaged in those charitable works in the name of our Lord. Works do not generate faith. That's backwards. But our faith must generate good works, otherwise our faith is dead. James 2.26 Our justification and our salvation, that comes through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Evidence of our sanctification or of our being set apart for his use is the ongoing work of this life. Service to the King of Kings. Paul is encouraged by the Ephesians because he sees there's fruit on the tree. Thus he continues to pray for them, and by this he is our example of how in Christ's love we ought always to pray one for another. Verses 17 to 19a. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope 
to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? What is Paul saying? He's saying some amazing things here. Let's look at some of them. He asked that God the Father might grant the Ephesian Christians a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. There can be no greater knowledge that we can attain to and in fact desire than a more intimate and full knowledge of our God. All other knowledge pales in comparison. Paul says it's not even worthy considering. In fact, that besides the knowledge of Christ, everything else is rubbish. That's the words that he used. Philippians 3 verse 8. What we need to understand here is Paul is talking about knowledge of God, but not apart from relationship to God. Because he tells us that I might know Christ, not about Christ. I might know Christ. So what is this knowledge? And it's explained here. The word that's being used is a Greek word called epignosis. And this is what the definition, it says, exact or full knowledge, discernment, recognition. This is the key for you and I. This knowledge is, quote, a greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing him or her. So as we go get into this knowledge of God, as we press into the Lord, as we desire to more know more about him, this knowledge is impressed upon us and it influences us. It's a full, intimate and complete knowledge. God wants us to grow in the knowledge of Christ. We're never going to be complete in this, on this side of heaven. But Ephesians 4.13 gives a wonderful challenge and a promise of fulfillment. What does it say? Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Anybody there yet? No, didn't see a hand other than mine. I shouldn't have put it up. That's the objective. That's the objective, folks, that intimate knowledge of him. Paul asks that we might be enlightened in our knowledge of him. The Amplified Bible brings this out rather interestingly. It says of this verse, And I pray that the eyes of your heart, the very center and core of your being, may be enlightened, flooded, flooded with light by the Holy Spirit. Seeing the precious Holy Spirit has been given to us to lead us into all truth, And in his truth, there is light and there is no darkness at all. It's no wonder God wants to flood these sinful hearts, this sinful heart, with fresh revelations of him. And the Holy Spirit reveals truth, doesn't he? In John 16, 13. And truth is a person. It's the person of Jesus. He reveals it through his word, through prayer, and through meditating upon him. Paul prays that we might truly understand the hope that lies before us. So what is hope? Hope is the joyful expectation of good things to come. It's a confidence that the promises that God has given, he will ultimately fulfill. That our joy in him might be complete. 
But hope of what? Hope, this longing expectation for the marvelous inheritance we are to receive from the Most High God. Paul is creating a powerful motivation, isn't he? Press into Christ. There's a hope. It's an eternal hope. It won't disappoint. He points us to the glorious riches of the kingdom of God. Perhaps we may not see this with our physical eyes, but then that's why our hearts need to be enlightened, isn't it? Our spiritual eyes need to be flooded with light. Years ago, the Christian rock group Petra, yay, we rock. Anybody listen to Petra? Oh, you guys are not, not old enough. Um, the rock group Petra wrote a powerful, emotive worship song entitled, You Are the Lord. The lyrics speak of our heritage in terms of how we live today. The words are this, Your gospel, O Lord, is the hope for our nation. It's the power of God for our salvation. We ask for not for riches, but look to the cross. And for our inheritance, give us the lost. And for our inheritance, give us the lost? What a selfless and hope and prayer. Not asking for riches, fame, power, but for lost souls. Our hope is sure. It's anchored in Jesus. Souls saved for the kingdom because of our faithfulness to serve. What an inheritance. Consider these prayerful words. Quote, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? When you consider that God the Father, what he has done by investing his son's life in us, by him bearing all of our sins on the cross to purchase us back, and then realizing that he has endowed us with the same power in the Holy Spirit through whom he created the heavens and the earth, what else can we do but bow our heads in awe? The power by which God created the universe out of nothing resides in each of us by his Holy Spirit. What unspeakable grace. What unknowable depths of riches. What indescribable love he demonstrates towards you and I. And all this because he has purchased us and we have responded to Jesus in faith because he has enabled us to believe. We cannot possibly express any human pride in this because from beginning to end, it is a gift of God and it is his investment in us to advance his kingdom in the earth. Verses 19b to 21. According to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, <clears throat> and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The same power that brought about Jesus' resurrection from the dead is inside each of us who has put his or her trust in him. In fact, he tells us that we are actually reigning and ruling with Christ positionally, positionally with him as vice regents. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Paul prays with his spiritual eyes open, doesn't he? His eyes are wide open. Like the prophet Elisha, he represents, or pardon me, the prophet Elisha represents a powerful picture of the unseen powers in heaven who support us. In 2 Kings 6, the king of Syria and his armies were at war with Israel. However, the Syrian armies failed in their attempts because the prophet Elisha, being forewarned by God, told the king of Israel, who was Jehoram, the son of Ahab, of their intents. And so Israel eluded the Syrians. The Syrian king was confounded by this and suspected maybe he was being betrayed by one of his own countrymen. However, in verse 12, one of the king's servants says this, Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom, unquote. Thus, the Syrian king dispatched a great army to search out and seize Elisha. The next morning, Elisha's servant wakes up and he looks out and he sees the city is surrounded by the Syrian army. And in desperation, he tells Elisha their predicament. In verse 16 to 18, Elisha provided an answer. Here's what he said. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha, unquote. What a story. And like Elisha's servant in the story, we too need to be reminded that those for us greatly outnumber those who are against us. One plus God, folks, is a majority. As we look at this passage in Ephesians, let us pray that God opens our eyes to the mystery and the majesty of him, because he desires to give good gifts to his children. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to, desert, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, what has that left out? Nothing. Everything is under his authority, without exception. Over all things, including every soul in this world, and Satan, who... Christ utterly defeated at the cross. How can we do anything other than be about the Father's business? He's given us his Son. He's given us his Word. And he's placed his Holy Spirit in us. We're fully equipped to be kingdom builders. For he has put all things, he has put all things under his feet. Verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For he has put all things under his feet. If you have any doubts, folks, about the ultimate victory of Christ and his church, let this promise dispel them forever. Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling now and forever. 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father, a place of ultimate authority and power. Victory was declared and decided at the cross, and you and I are simply living out the results of that victory as he builds his kingdom on the earth. And his church, us, is integral to this mission, for we're all his body, his hands, his feet, through which he's going to accomplish his will. If we look at this world with human eyes, it brings only dismay because we see only the consequences of sin everywhere, don't we? Spiritual eyes, the ones that are flooded with the light of Scripture, focused by the Holy Spirit, open through prayer, they see the glory of the risen Christ and provide this secure confidence that he will accomplish his purpose. He is the head. We're the body. Together, we are inextricably linked to him, the head of the church. He will never leave us nor forsake us. No one can take us from his hand. All these things are scripture. This is scripture that you're hearing. No one can take us from his hand. His body that he speaks of is the church on earth today, the church universal and the church local. The Greek word for the word, for the word church is ekklesia, and it means those who are called out and called together as an assembly. We're called out of sin and darkness, aren't we? Anybody here who wasn't in sin and darkness? Don't think so. We're called out of sin and darkness into his marvelous light together. Thus, we're not left alone for two very important reasons. One, Jesus is always with us. And two, we can't possibly do his work unless we do it together. That's why it's so vitally important that Christians gather together in local churches, whether that's in Ephesus or Rome, Jerusalem, or Wanneroo. The lone or unchurched Christian is an anomaly. It is contrary to God's purpose because he's building us up in local churches to accomplish his work together. All right, let me just encapsulate this for you with seven quick points here. First of all, God desires to have us have a continuing revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ in all wisdom, that the eyes of our spiritual understanding would be flooded with light. Yeah, we got that from Ephesians 1 verse 18. Our blessings in Christ are available to us through prayer, James 5.16. The works of God's grace should be evident amongst us. Why? Because faith without works is dead, James 2.20. We need to understand more fully our rich inheritance in Christ for his glory, Ephesians 1.18. We are challenged to continue to pray, to praise, to confess, to worship, to intercede without ceasing. That we may abound more and more in the Holy Spirit and his gifts, his knowledge, his blessings. For he leads us into all truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 We're to grow in God's knowledge and wisdom, not the world's false wisdom, for God makes wise the simple. James 3.17, 1 Corinthians 3.20-25. 20 
that I might know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Jesus provides us with a lively or living hope because he offered the perfect sacrifice for our sins, past, present, and future. We have a joyful expectation of good things to come, which is what our hope really is. And this is what provokes you and I to works of service on behalf of our Savior and Lord. Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Let me wrap up. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church and for us today is that our spiritual eyes might be opened to the endless dimensions of God's love and grace towards us, his saints. He wants us to know our Savior more fully and recognize the limitless power and authority of his kingdom. Let us too pray like Elisha and understand that those who are with us far outnumber and will overcome those who are arrayed against us. Lord, for our inheritance, give us the lost. Amen.